Welcome back, nature lovers, to another episode of the Birdie Bunch podcast where we talk everything conservation. Nope. We don't talk conservation anymore. We talk nothing. None. We speak nothing. No, no, no. 90 minutes of dead air. Anyway, Brittany, take it away for realsies. lovers to another episode of the pretty bunch podcast we're so excited to have you back um i can't wait to uh share all all the new all the new good content <laughs> with that let's get into it let's please get into it Welcome back, nature lovers, to another episode of the Brady Bunch podcast, where we talk everything conservation, education, and fascination. My name is Brittany, and I am joined this week by my two friends and co-hosts. I'm CJ. I didn't realize that we do conservation, education, and fascination on this podcast. My name's Matt. <laughs> Oh, it's gonna be a long one, folks. It's gonna be a real. I really hope we get this done quick. <laughs> Me too. Question. Side note: Did I say something wrong? No. Okay. I was referencing the first time you said, "Were we talking conservation?" conservation? No. 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 <laughs> <laughs> just, just the the aggressive no. <laughs> I had to punish my brain for not doing the right thing. You just put yourself in the corner. <laughs> How are we doing this week, folks? Well, I'm just in a silly, goofy mood. I don't know what's got me in this silly, goofy mood, but I'm in a silly, goofy mood today. So we'll see what kind of silly, goofy fun we have this week. Now I'm feeling funky fresh. Oh, wait. Actually, I do have something to talk about. Actually, no! I do. <laughs> Um, th uh, this episode comes out when? The 25th? Yes. Yeah, so the day this episode comes out, I'll actually be returning to my home in Chicago from Boston. I'll be visiting my mom in Boston, and I'm going to be doing some cool stuff up there. So I'll take some videos and post them on our Birdie Bunch social media, which we'll plug later. And then, uh, and then the other thing is uh, two weekends ago, a good friend of the oh. podcast, Freya McGregor, was staying at my house, which was very exciting. Matt, how are you actually, other than funky fresh? I literally am funky fresh. Between the last time y'all have heard me speak, and today I've been to not one, but two concerts. I You're just, a concert-going boy. I just got home from Michigan where I went to the Edmund Fitzgerald Museum, as well as kayaked the Straits of Mackinac. I am... How, what about the gaze it... of Mackinac? Got him! Oh! Oh, I thought it was a rhyming thing, and I was like, that doesn't rhyme. <laughs> I forgot what I said. Yeah, that's a little bit of a, a, so bit of a prank I joke there. So I am living my best free life, which is good because I go back to the hell that is my regular daily life now. I know that you're not in Missouri, but it sure sounds like you're in misery. And Brittany may be in both. <laughs> Brittany, how are you? Yeah, Brittany, how are you? 
Well, when this episode comes out, I will just be actually in Chicago. So doing it pretty well. Going up just to see family and friends and enjoying just some time up in Chicago. Well, that's wonderful. Hopefully you had a good time. I must have just missed you. Um, but I hope that you had a good time while you were here. Well, we've all shared how we're doing. Should we jump into our first segment? How's that sound, everybody? I don't know. Is it a kangaroo? Our first segment is not a kangaroo. No, our first segment is the creature feature. Well, then how are we going to jump into it? It could have been a koala. They don't jump. <laughs> they fall. They fall. Same difference. Drop bear. <laughs> So our creature feature for this week, I've actually left as a surprise uh, for Matt and Brittany because I'm going to give you guys some clues and hopefully you'll be able to guess what our creature feature is. Look How's out, that sound, gang. friends? Look What's out, up? gang. I smell a mystery on our hands. Ooh, a mystery is afoot. So our creature this week, here's just some fun facts about them. They are one of the few species of mammals without specific adaptations. They do have some adaptations, but not specific adaptations that allow them to live in cold environments. They are mostly herbivores, eating plants like leaves, roots, things like that. But occasionally they will scavenge things that are dyed and kind of eat things like that. They are mostly terrestrial, but they are excellent swimmers, and I'm not. No, I'm not going to give you the last clue because it'll give it away. What do we think it is? Just, just right now. Can I just confirm for the first clue you said it is not adapted for cold? Correct. It's not specifically adapted for cold environments. Correct. It does have a couple adaptations like long fur, but evolutionarily was not designed <laughs> for crazy cold environments. Does that mean it lives in warm environments? No. No, it lives in some of the coldest environments in Asia. In fact, oh. it's pretty much endemic to Japan's oh. Honshu, Shikoto, and Koshu Islands. Oh, uh, yeah, okay. Okay, I'm here. I'm here. Brittany, are you here? No. Guess, Brittany, what do you think it is? No. Because my <laughs> first guess until you gave me long fur was very wrong. What was what your was first it? guess? Well, you said that they were mostly mostly herbivores. Yeah. And what was this, the last one? It um, they're particularly good swimmers. Yeah, so I my the, it, I went to hippo. I'm oh. Mm -hmm. That was that. I went to hippo. Hippos are good. It's it's not even not even close. Correct. But well, they, they don't, don't have be fur. In Japan. And they don't be in Japan. But um, it is a good guess. I think hippo is a really, really super cool animal. We, we featured Nile hippos before, but never pygmy hippos. We should circle yeah. back to pygmy hippos at some point. We should. I we should. love a pygmy hippo. But that is not our creature feature for today. It is, in fact, a species of primate. It's the Japanese macaque. It is, in fact, the Japanese macaque, also known as snow monkeys. Oh, yeah. What did you say, Brittany? Didn't we already do the Japanese macaque? I don't think that we did as a creature feature. There's a very easy way to tell. I In the meantime, we... while CJ's checking this out, 
The Japanese macaque is a species of monkey that can be found in Japan. They're called snow monkeys because sometimes they live in the snow. They're also very good at swimming, as CJ said. That's no, all I know about them. We've never done Japanese macaque as a creature feature. What did we do that we were that we did we, did we ever talk about Lincoln Park Zoo and that new exhibit that they put in? I was about to. <laughs> So, yes, they are called snow monkeys. They do live in these cold environments, but they how do they stay warm? They stay warm, one, through huddling in groups. They're super, super social animals. They live in these giant troops. Can contain, you know, anywhere between 25, 50, 75 primates that these troops can get crazy big. But huddling together doesn't necessarily always help when you're hanging out at negative 5 degrees Fahrenheit with snow cover that's more than 3 feet deep. So... What do they do is they warm themselves by bathing in hot thermal springs that are heated by nearby volcanoes. So if you've ever seen a video or a picture of a monkey hanging out in a hot tub, it might have been one of these guys. <laughs> They're pretty average size for primates, so you know, weighing between 20 and 30 pounds usually. Honestly, most are smaller than that, on the, or at least on the smaller end of that range. Um, and they can live pretty, pretty long. They can live between, you know, 22 and, you know, 32 years. So there's a, a, a really interesting social structure of these primates. And because they are so fascinating, the Lincoln Park Zoo has actually started doing a cognition study on these beautiful, interesting, fascinating primates. So basically, zoo scientists are using a range of technological tools to kind of understand how these Japanese macaques think. And they're kind of starting by using touchscreen computers. So the primates themselves are using these touchscreen computers to solve different types of puzzles for a short time every single day in their habitats. By observing how these monkeys approach their challenges, we're learning how they remember solutions and even what sorts of mistakes that they make, through all of that, we're gaining insights as to how they perceive and understand their social and physical environments. Recently, scientists at the Lincoln Park Zoo have introduced a new tool into their scientific resources, one that allows them to record what captures the primate's attention as the group participates in test sessions. So they're using an eye tracker, which is a non-invasive tool that basically just like records their you know, where they're looking. And that way zoo scientists can gain more information about their preferences and make, you know, accommodations to their environment and their study to make the primates the most interested they can be. What are our thoughts on our fascinating snow monkeys, the Japanese macaques? I want to call myself out because I think this was really funny. When you said, if you've ever seen a picture of a monkey in a hot tub, it might just be a Japanese macaque, I almost cut in with, or the illegal wildlife trade. And I'm proud of myself for cutting myself off. I mean, that's very true. That's very, very true. Really funny, though. And I had to call it's it. It's funny, but it's it. also like brutal, right? Yeah, we talk insert... a lot about how, you know, species, especially primates, can be taken in by the illegal wildlife trade. Absolutely. And if you want more information on that, circle back to another episode because that's not what we're doing today. Insert sad laugh track here. Laugh track over. Anyways, 
Uh, I'm not a big fan of primates. I'll be the first to admit it. I never have. Well, been. it's a great I, thing that to this episode then. Uh. Yeah, no, it's it's a problem. I love birds. What can I say? But I will say Japanese macaques were alongside with lemurs, one of the very few that I was like, I was really, really interested in. And I think maybe I was like, I felt some solidarity with the Japanese macaques because I grew up outside Chicago. And so like those pictures of them in the snow, I was like, yeah, yeah, I vibe with that. You know, I get it. So I think it's a really cool species that frankly is like one of those things that you look at pictures and you're like, whoa, like the animal world is weird. Like that's one of the, you know, big surprising ones. You know, it shows how incredibly diverse organisms in the world are. And so I just, I I always really, really fixated on stuff like that. So I always really like Japanese macaques. And I will say the Lincoln Park Zoo exhibit for them is freaking sick. It's pretty stellar. It's pretty stellar. Um, no, that's the sea eagle. Anyways, very good. Also, mm-hmm. uh, one of the jays. I'm pretty sure. Yes. Anyway, also, Brittany, what are your thoughts on the snow monkey? No, I think they're really cool. I've actually gotten to see some of the researchers doing some of that at uh, Lincoln Park Zoo, um, which has been really cool. I got to have like some pretty fascinating conversations, and just seeing that whole process is really cool. But uh, yeah, they're really adorable. And if you've ever seen the baby, I, there was, I, this is obviously like probably maybe a year and a half ago, two years, but they had some cute little babies and it was adorable. Yeah, they still um, do have a couple of juveniles who, while they're like hanging on to their like mother, they're also like touching the touch screen. Mm-hmm. It's really right. adorable. Oh my God. <laughs> I also, I want to add too, you know, like we talk about a lot of the zoo exhibits and like, uh it's really important to highlight when things are updating because like this is a new like exhibit this is like within a year and a half maybe two years or something like that right definitely more than that really oh wait also i'm gonna say yeah this was pre-covid wasn't it well pre yes i was actually i was actually just gonna make a comment though i've lost a couple Um, years that's my yeah just just a few it's relatively new it is relatively new yeah you go ahead talk about relatively new it's relatively new and so i think it's important to also highlight when zoos make like really important and critical updates to infrastructure and all that because like anytime you emphasize animal welfare and human you know inter you know ability to learn to engage from a zoo exhibit like this exhibit kind of highlights that perfectly so i kind of wanted to emphasize that too yeah a thousand percent anyway let's move on to our next segment Our next segment is, of course, the current events. This uh, current event comes from mangabay.com titled Habitat Loss, Climate Change, Send Hyacinth Macaw Reeling Back into Endangered Status. And now, before I get into that current event, you've been clickbaited. There's another current event. It's titled, Lazy Bird Watcher Would Rather Just Watch Bird He's Already Seen. Just kidding. You've been clickbaited again. That was an article published today, July 12th, by The Onion. But definitely go check it out. It's really, really funny. Um, It's a really good satire about birding. Anyways, back to your regularly scheduled current event. So, like I said, titled, Habitat Loss. Climate change sent hyacinth macaw reeling back into endangered status. Now, before I get anything, we've we've talked a lot about parrots and macaws. Um, we've had 
the folks at the Citizen Welfare Institute on not once but twice on the podcast, as well as we might reference them even a little bit later. Who knows? This, today's going to get wonky, as you can probably already tell. But the hyacinth macaw is the world's largest flying parrot. Uh, it's a really big, bright kind of blue. Like, I don't know what kind of blue to call that. Like, it's kind of bordering on royal, but a little bit like a sky mixed in. Like, it's a really rich, vibrant blue. It's got really, really solid dark black underwings and a nice bright yellow gold patch right near the the lower mandible of its bill. But this bird had been on the brink of extinction a while ago. It had been on the endangered species list. And after a massive, massive conservation restoration effort, uh, they were brought back off of the endangered species list in Brazil, um, only to then be potentially being relisted again. So it's hung around on vulnerable for a while. It's invulnerable currently on the IUCN red list. Uh, they are the ones who usually assess conservation status across the entire world. So this is not looking at just within a country, within a state, you know, like how sometimes we look at different delegations for conservation status. This is a worldwide partner who is looking at making worldwide, worldwide denominations on what a conservation status for a global population pattern is. Now, this bird faces a lot of threats. Habitat loss is a huge one. And that's right now being exacerbated by a bigger threat that's facing the entire world. That's climate change. So there's been a lot of fires that have happened in their habitat. They live in forests in Brazil and um, countries surrounding there. This is specifically referring to Brazil's endangered species list. But they live in fires in what's known as the Pantanal wetlands. They live in habitat known as the Pantanal wetlands, and they've been plagued by fires lately. And now this has exacerbated not one problem, but actually created a couple more. So originally, you know, fire is a bad thing in certain ecosystems, and fire isn't the best in this ecosystem and these birds weren't evolved you know to survive that and so first of all fire struck and uh that was kind of a problem for the species in general what happened then is that it created a lack of food availability which these birds were competing for more and more and more which was less and less conducive to major major survival at the same time resources for species that wouldn't normally predate on hyacinth macaws also ended up predating on these birds because they were there they were available and like i said food resources were really really scarce and so it kind of created a trickle down thing where not only did the fire itself had an effect on the the community of the hyacinth macaws but also then the species that lived within the hyacinth macaws and so it's created a bunch of confounding factors even you know going outside of deforestation because that's a major problem as well and then we talk about climate change where Temperature swings are becoming more and more common. You know, you're getting lower lows and higher highs, which is really, really unhealthy for not only eggs, but also hatchlings, which cannot, without the care of a mother, properly regulate their own body temperatures the same way that a fully grown adult could. And then you also have heightened precipitation events, weather events that become more strong, they become more intense. And so you're seeing more and more FUDs that are occurring where these birds nest. They're flooding out nests. They're flooding out potential sites. They're making it harder to nest, as well as the heightened pressures upon the ones that are already alive. 
And so what we're looking at is a potential relisting of this species, which would be to say a sad event would be it, it would be almost like an understatement. This is such a charismatic species that does so much for their ecosystems. They are almost single-handedly replanting trees by based on their frugivorous habits. That's, you know, eating seeds and nuts and fruits and all that. What they do is they will eat them. They poop them out and that plants new seeds for trees to grow back. Hyacinth macaws are very, very synonymous with the ecosystems that they live. And so the potential of this project needing to step in, it's good that they have a project and it's not nearly as bad as it was the first time it was listed for the endangered species list in Brazil. But nonetheless, it's something that needs to be, you know, kept an eye on and is disappointing to hear, to say the least. I mean, we, we talked not even, you know, 10 minutes ago during our creature feature very briefly about the wildlife trade, right? We talk about deforestation constantly. We talk about a lot of these issues that the Heinz and the Paw are facing very, very regularly. And even just two weeks ago in our last episode, we talked about human wildlife conflict mitigation very briefly. A lot of what we talk about and a lot of what the highs and cost struggles with is all of those things. And it's it's really tough to see such a beautiful animal like the hyacinth macaw struggle so much because, you know, it, it it's just tough. And I really appreciate you sharing this one. It's important to note, and I'm really glad you brought up the wildlife trade too. It is really, really important to note that so many of the species that are really in dire straits that we look at in the world right now, you can't lock down one single issue that's plaguing them. When you look at the hyacinth macaw, you've got climate change, you've got deforestation, you've got fires, you've got, um, you've got, like you said, the wildlife trade and so many things that are all exacerbating themselves. And if you look at most of the species that are truly in critical conservation condition right now, it, they're all the same. There's not one major problem. Some of them can be flagships for problems, right? You look at big cats and large predators and usually looking at human wildlife conflict or you know those are the kind of things that we look to species often as flagships for these certain problems but at the same time conservation would be remiss and conservation plans would be remiss by only addressing one of those problems in reality there's so much more the world is so complicated and the issues that these species face are also just as complicated Matt, thanks again for that uh, really interesting current event. It was, like I said, super interesting. For more information, you can listen to a bunch of other episodes of the Pretty Much Podcast. Maybe we'll link those in our blog post. Um, but for now, let's move on to our interview. We interviewed some people from a really cool nonprofit called Wild Think. So let's get into that interview right now. <laughs> All righty, nature lovers. Well, we're uh, we're super excited to be welcome welcoming Emily and Nick from Wild Think. They're going to be uh, introducing themselves, and we're gonna we're gonna see what they're all about. So, if one of y'all want to introduce yourselves. Hi, I am Emily Kane, and my pronouns are she/her, and I am the co-founder of Wild Think, the enrichment nonprofit. And uh, my name is Nick Nato, pronouns he, him. Um, I'm 
the other co-founder of Wild Think, and uh, Emily and I have been working on this stuff for past going on six years, I think. So you both co-founded Wild Think. I was wondering if you could tell the listeners on the podcast, you know, what is Wild Think? Kind of, you know, maybe give us the history of the non-for-profit as well as, you know, what are your goals, right? What's your mission? Uh, just tell us everything that you can tell us, you know, everything you want to. We're very, very curious on the pod to hear about what you do. Sure, I can jump in. So it all, I guess the short of it, so I don't lose people before we get started, but we make enrichment for zoo animals, sanctuary animals, basically anywhere you house animals. Our goal is to make cooler, better, more useful enrichment for them. And our the big thing we make is the animal vending machine, which um, animals, it's main purpose is to stimulate or simulate foraging so you search your enclosure for tokens and you can put the token in the machine and get some food out and then the complexity that we can add by hiding tokens or making them hard to get or having animals train for them just adds to the enrichment experience overall and so wild think actually came to be back when Emily and I were doing our masters together at Colorado State. We did a very small and somewhat strange program called, uh, it's a professional science masters in zoo, aquarium and animal shelter management. And part of our master's program is uh, we have a thesis project and it's basically go help a zoo or a sanctuary or an animal shelter, go help somebody. And uh, I was sent to the Shine Mountain Zoo to come up with enrichment for uh, gorillas, gorillas and orangutans. I came up with the idea for the vending machine somehow. I honestly couldn't tell you where the idea came from, but um, because I had no money and not a lot of resources, I made it out of Lego robotics. And I spent the whole summer doing that. And then I got to test it for like a week. So fast forward to Emily the next year, she actually uses the machine and figures out, you know, this is a pretty good idea. What now? And then I guess I can let Emily kind of go into that, why we started Wild Thing. Yeah, so um, we didn't intend to start a nonprofit or I guess Nick didn't intend to start a nonprofit when he set out to build this vending machine. Um, it was more, as he said, a, a project to help zoos with some of these um, maybe abnormal or what we call undesirable under, undesirable behaviors in their apes. So as you all know, with really intelligent birds like parrots, um, as soon as you put really intelligent animals in a human care setting, you have to ensure that you are giving them lots of resources and outlets to stimulate their brains and their bodies. Otherwise they can get really bored. So Nick just intended to make this one device for this one zoo. Um, and after I evaluated, I did a behavioral study to evaluate the effect of having this enrichment device, this vending machine in the enclosure with the animals versus what they spent their time doing without the vending machine. And I found that it increased 
ape activity by about 40%, which is a pretty big margin of difference. Um, so that means the animals were spending less time kind of laying around, um, more time engaging with their environment, climbing, doing a lot of these natural behaviors that they that they should be doing because they're healthy. Um, so Nick actually brought the vending machine to a, um, he presented it at a, a, an orangutan conference and people started coming up to him and asking for them. And Nick told them, you know, I built this out of Legos, which I had to glue back together every day because the orangutans would punch the machine so hard at night, all the Legos would fly out. Um, and then we'd have to sit there in the morning and trade them for pieces of Legos. And I would spend about four hours reassembling the machine every day. So we knew we couldn't make it out of Legos anymore. That was not practical at all, though probably enriching for the animals to take Legos out of the machine every day. So they had fun. I was mad, but they had fun. Um, so we basically set off to uh, build these machines. And we were advised that the best way to do so was to incorporate as a nonprofit. And after we incorporated as a nonprofit, we found lots of gaps in resources in other ways for animal enrichment. Um, for example, there's not one place to go online. There's not one catalog or menu of enrichment ideas that are in one place. You have to go to Pinterest or you go to you know some specific zoo's website and the things are just kind of scattered all over the internet. Um, so we're also putting together an enrichment database and we're putting together care manuals and we're doing things like that. So it's kind of taken off from there. Just I've used I've used your guys's database um, as a keeper and it is fantastic um, because literally Pinterest has been my life for like the last few years trying to come up with new enrichment ideas or trying to find something that I know an animal is going to like or something that's going to promote a natural behavior. And so your guys' database has really been just fabulous. Um, Yay, I'm glad to hear yeah. that. Yeah, anytime someone brings that up, I just have to point out that was all Emily. So you can thank Emily for that. Thanks, Emily. <laughs> You're very welcome. It's fun to put together, but I have a lot more to do um, because there are so many cool enrichment items and I always am searching for things. And then I find some cool enrichment item on some blog that's buried deep in the internet. And then I find, you know, it leads to a web of other enrichment items. So it's a work in progress and I hope someday um, I can have somebody or I could be doing this full time, but um, I'm just doing what I can on the weekends for now. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's such a really cool project. And I know I've been like following you guys online for a while through about wild think, and I've just like seen the growth, which is really, really amazing. Um, but for some of our listeners who maybe haven't kind of seen the growth, you kind of told a really beautiful story there, kind of starting from the university days to today. <laughs> um, can you talk to us a little bit more about like potentially the future of Wild Bank? What, 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 what is, what are current goals? What are things that you're like fundraising for? Talk to me about maybe the future of the vending machine, things like that. Yeah. So current goals is a, big question and then future goals is like a whole other I, th I think we change our minds on that every day and it kind of it all depends on what happens now so we've spent just over a year building um, five new vending machines for um, five different zoos um, we have one at the Oklahoma City Zoo we have one at the Columbus Zoo, um, the Toronto Zoo, 
the Cameron Park Zoo, and then I think the last zoo we can't name just yet. But we have one more going out soon. It should be next month that we're really excited about as well. And so we are still very much in a beta testing phase. So making things ape proof is so hard. Um, and then making things remotely affordable and ape proof is also so hard. So that's kind of the big thing right now is we have these built, but um, we're still fundraising for maintenance. Anything that can go wrong, we're going to have to replace or fix or whatever. We just learned how much it costs to ship to Toronto, which was an unpleasant surprise. Um, but yeah, so we're, we're have the have four machines out right now. One more is going and we're just kind of in a feedback gathering stage. And then from there, it's, are these machines good enough as is? If not, what needs to be fixed? If they are good enough, can we make them cheap enough that we can actually afford to make as many as we would like to? Um, That's what's really hard too, um, mm -hmm. because right now all of our machines are 3D printed. So all of the pieces inside the vending machines are 3D printed, which is a really awesome resource because we can print individual pieces if they break, but it's really costly and time consuming and labor intensive if we're trying to make a hundred of them. But if you also think about our market, um, our, we're marketing to zoos and sanctuaries and potentially laboratories in the future, which is kind of a direction I'd really like to go. Um, you know, some laboratory, enrichment for the primates in laboratories because they need a lot of mental stimulation. Um, but there's not that many of them. So to do injection molding, and we're learning about these fabrication processes, which is just completely out of our realm of knowledge at this point. But um, learning about all of that stuff is really critical because we need to figure out if we have enough if, if our market is big enough to produce these mass scale or if we're going to continue to do these hand-built one by one. Um, so that's kind of where we're at right now. Yeah, well, it's kind of a frustrating is not the right word, but we have people asking for them and it's kind of just like, wait and wait for how long? Well, at this point, we don't quite know, but one day we would like to send a machine to Australia or Israel or something, but mm -hmm. there's hopefully not too many steps in between now and then, but the truth is we just don't quite know yet. And all of that R&D stuff uh, is expensive. I mean, it definitely sounds that way. It definitely sounds that way. <laughs> yeah, yes. if, if I could go back and come up with a cool enrichment idea. It would have been something that I could have made out of like a block of wood or something. Right, like super affordable, just. <laughs> Yes, yeah, it, especially uh, electronics around super intelligent animals. Um, you, you have to make sure they're very secure. But um, another thing we're hoping to do is expand the species that we use these for. So um, one of the um, zoos that we're testing with now is planning on using the machine they have right now with some of the other animals that have good dexterity. Um, but these machines are pretty big. They're about two feet wide by three feet tall by about a foot deep. So they're, you know, like a suitcase size. We would love, love, love to make smaller machines 
um, for, for monkeys and for um, some of the more intelligent birds as well. Um, Gabe Kaysen's been your fellow friend and podcast guest. He's been Absolutely. on our case about making, yeah, he's, when are you getting a parent machine ready? I'm ready for the Corvid machine. And I'm like, we're working on it. So um, that would be a really cool project as well, because there's just so much potential, um, you know, otters, uh, raccoons, anything that can pick up a token. Um, maybe cats. We'll see. I don't know about cats. Maybe cats. <laughs> yeah. You can definitely out. train a cat. You can probably have to figure out it. the meat thing. That's uh, the, uh, honestly, despite how much technology goes into it, the getting the food out is still one of the hardest parts. And um, we, we have a pretty simple, but I guess relatively elegant solution, but it's still like there, we could spend a year trying to figure out the best way that we could put whatever food you want in the this machine and food will come out. Right now we're a little limited to food of a certain size. It can't be super wet, so it's um, meat would be a tough one, but we could figure it out. You know, what is it? Unlimited resources, and we can make you whatever you want. <laughs> okay, but that bird one also sounds really cool. <laughs> um, however, I do have Gabe's like Gabe has influenced me in that a lot. <laughs> Uh, but he's he's my boss, so at work. So we have lots of those conversations, full circle. <laughs> I did not know that. That's awesome. Yeah. Very um, cool. We are very parrot-minded. <laughs> I would um, imagine so, yes. <laughs> can you tell us some of y'all's favorite stories about some of the animals that have used uh, your your vending machine? Oh yeah, we have a lot. Um, so not we, as many as we'd like so far yet, though. Not as many. With I think the stories that we have right now are from our time studying the initial prototype machine, and since we just got these beta testing machines out into zoos, we're hoping to get more um, more feedback. But you know, they just went out. Um, last month, I believe, or two months ago. So we're hoping to have some more good stories from some of the zookeepers um, at all the other facilities. But when we were doing this initial testing at um, Cheyenne Mountain Zoo, some it's funny to watch some of the animals because some of them really appreciate a challenge and some of them do not appreciate a challenge. And they get really angry if they're not getting exactly what they want and it doesn't work exactly how how it's supposed to and one of the frustrating things about the vending machine is it's electronic so um, when we were testing the initial prototype we really had to make sure that food was coming out every time and if it wasn't coming out that we would hand them food because we want to reinforce that behavior of putting the token in the top of the machine um, so one of the orangutans at the Cheyenne Mountain Zoo would actually um, just come up and start punching the machine as hard as he could um, if he got frustrated by food not coming out or if there were no more tokens he thought well i can't get food out the correct way so i'm gonna come over and just start punching as hard as he can and it's loud and there's guests watching and they're wondering what's going on um so that was a that was jarring and, and pretty funny 
And then my other favorite story is that the initial vending machine actually had little cups that the food would come out in. And the baby started, um, she was, I think, only two years old at this time, but the baby at the Cheyenne Mountain Zoo would take um, the cups over to their water spout and actually start filling the cups up with water and would carry the water cups around the enclosure, which I thought was really cool because she actually found a use for the things that came out of the vending machine that weren't edible. Um, and I don't know if she, I don't think she ever drank the water. She just carried it around. She thought it was fun. So that was pretty cute. I think one of the others, Godek, did that as well. So he's uh, he moved to Seattle. He was the very first orangutan that ever used a machine. But I remember him carrying cups around with him as well. They're um, funny like that. Orangutans are tool yeah. users. It's sure. usually the adult males that either don't care at all or have an express goal to break it. They're not so interested in figuring out how to use it. They figure breaking is easier and more quickly rewarded, yeah. which it's not <laughs> because it's, we've gotten it to the point where it's not that easy to break and then get food out of. Um, mm -hmm. So then it's actually broken. So unfortunately, most of our stories are expensive stories <laughs> that aren't so funny to us because it ends up costing a lot of money to fix whatever they broke. So the, the male at Waco was funny because he, most of them, take it, take the token between their fingers because they got huge ones and they kind of slide it through and then use their lips to like guide it into the slot. He would just like put it in his mouth, get as close as he could and then just like spit it in. And he was pretty <laughs> yeah. accurate. Yeah, he, he was like a two thirds of the time he got it right in the, the token deposit, but they were trying to train him to, you know, be a little bit more accurate because then they drop it outside of the enclosure and they can't get it. Um, I've actually seen an orangutan start to dismantle their enclosure to create a tool to get a raisin that came out of the vending machine out the back. Um, that was really amazing. Um, the One of the zoos has a really big wooden pole holding up the building. It's like a structural pole. And the orangutan went over and just started biting all the way down this pole and got like a chunk of wood off and was using the chunk of wood under the door to get the one it was a one raisin a shriveled one single raisin and he spent so long using this structural pole piece to get a single raisin but it's valuable i guess so the work That's for it hysterical and also very frightening at the same time because at any point he could have done that to, right. to get whatever he wanted. <laughs> it's terrifying when they just give you nuts and bolts. Um, when I used to work with some of the apes, we'd come in in the morning and they would just hand you like a screw. Where did that come from? I don't want to know. <laughs> worked on it all night and give it to you in the morning. Oh, my God. <laughs> I can't, I don't think I could ever be a primate keeper. Yeah, I uh, I did some uh, volunteer work with primates, and I definitely no shied me away from it for sure. But I, I your project is oh so fascinating, and I've learned a lot just in this conversation. Uh, we're kind of nearing our end here, but before we wrap up, do you have any questions for us? Well, to pick your brains about, I mean, uh, I guess bird intelligence. So. What is, because Nick and I are, you know, more on the primate side of things, um, what are some 
interesting or do you think some necessary things to know if we were to design one of these for birds? What would be something to keep in mind um, when working with corvids um, or with um, citizens? What would we want to remember? That's a tricky question. Matt, do you have any thoughts? Thanks for throwing that one to me, CJ. Um, so I would say um, the first thing thinking of in the, the brief stuff that I've done with corvids is that corvids in particular get bored really easily. Mm. Um, they, uh, it's like you kind of want to label them as food motivated, but at the same time, that's not the only thing going on in there. You know, mm. I do a lot, a lot of work with raptors and such right now. And the arrangement that we do with them is fairly rudimentary just because it is all food, all drive, all the time kind of thing. And Corvids just, they they do stuff just to do stuff is what it feels like sometimes. Like it kind of feels like cats to wear cats. Like at the end of the day, like a cat's going to do what wants to do. Yeah. Like I don't trust cats as far as I can throw them, which I've never thrown a cat. So that's, I don't trust them at all. Um, but like Corvids in particular, from the work that I've done with them, I have less experience with citizens. Uh, the only thing that I can really speak to them is just the destructive force of their bills and how if they get bored very easily, that thing's getting shredded. And like plastic, I've seen them get through like rusty metal. Like they they are, they're brutes. They are legitimately, like if I were to put them in Marvel, they are Hulk and they have <laughs> just as much self-control as Hulk does when he's all green and such. So that's all I can really attest to as far as they go. I think as like the closest analog to an ape in a zoo is probably a corvid. Mm -hmm. uh, lesser, I think less so like a monkey or something because they're just a little. See, I would say like corvids are definitely less destructive mm -hmm. to property than primates, but <laughs> parrots and such probably not. Like I've seen them yeah. tear up stuff. To be fair, that, that is they should not be tearing up. That is a purely, it seems like, from a capacity to do destruction point. <laughs> mm. that, yeah, I think Corvids maybe match primates and potentially intelligence, but I don't yeah. know about indestructibility. <laughs> well, same thing with apes. Like sense. the scary thing about that one ripping off part of its enclosure is it didn't do that normally. Like it, they're normally just hanging out, doing stuff, normal things, and then. If something you know clicks and they're like, you know what, let me rip down this entire wall. And that's the thing with parrots is like they're in that I'm gonna rip a, that entire wall. Uh, like that switches on pretty much fun. at all times. But for fun, yeah, just for funsies. <laughs> yeah, that's that's why when I said like cats, I mean it. Like parrots are angry. But no, 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 no. Smart no. and very like they like we'll give we have a lot we, of opinions. We do, <laughs> and a lot of times they differ. Um, <laughs> but like well, we with like the, yeah, like at work with like our African gray parrot and stuff like that. If we give her lots of things to do, she's pretty happy and content, like destroying them, like figuring out the puzzle. Like she's very she's she'll figure out the puzzle in like a minute and be fine and do it. And then as soon as there's no more puzzle to do, she's going to destroy whatever it came in. So being able to kind of like switch things up and be able to have it 
feel like the whatever you're going to make be easily adaptable to change the puzzle or to change it up a little bit so it's something that's new and different I think is really important when thinking about doing things for like the birds and parrots and things like that um and the same thing honestly with the I used to work with a crow and it was the same for her she would just like she would figure out whatever enrichment we gave and as soon as it was over it was time to destroy what was that uh like 18 step puzzle that someone built for a crow that was all over the internet a few years ago like that was very cool it was like, like a Rube Goldwyn machine where like one yeah. step went to the next step went to the next step mm. I yeah, guarantee I, you though once that bird figured it out <laughs> he doesn't care anymore he if the reward be, wasn't enough never doing that again <laughs> yeah like it'll go through the motions but that the value of oh I figured out this thing it's gone and it's the same thing with apes so yeah not novelty is and always will be the hardest how do how do you make this interesting again there's um a uh, a scientist uh faye clark did a study a long time ago that kind of adapted the human like flow state stuff to animals and basically the crux of it is if you find something that's just hard enough where there's a little frustration but they can figure it out and the reward is good enough that like that meeting point is perfect enrichment basically so you can have a bit of a lower reward if the task that the animal is doing makes sense to them and is fun so like if I asked a crow to do something like, I don't know, climb up an enclosure and grab something from the top of it, that might be somewhat interesting for an ape because they actually have to climb and do stuff. But if a crow can just fly up, grab it and fly down, not interesting. So finding for the specific species or whatever animal you're working with, that thing that actually makes sense for their life history, but is still somewhat hard for them to do, that's, that's the tough part. And it takes a lot of sitting around and being like, um, I don't know what's a good idea. There's a saying among ape keepers that's if you drop in a screwdriver in an enclosure, the gorillas will run away from it. Uh, the chimps will use it as a weapon and the orangutans will use it to break out of their enclosure. So we went with orangutans because if you can build something for them, you can probably build it for anything. That's fair. Uh, yeah, primate primates terrify me just in general, just because of how smart they are. And like you see all of the internet stories about orangutans in in human care, like doing crazy things or whatever. And you see them all the time. You're like, no, no, thank you. Not for me. I I will love to appreciate from afar. <laughs> well, um, I wanted to thank you both for coming on, but is there any place that all of our lovely listeners can find you on social media? Yes, so um, our website is um, www.wildthink.org. So on there, you'll find all of our information about the animal vending machine. You can find our enrichment database and some other um, helpful enrichment-based welfare guides and things like that. Um, we are also on Facebook as Wild Think Enrichment, and we are on Instagram as 
at Wild Think Enrichment. So we're on those three. And we just started a TikTok, but I can't remember the handle for that. So stay tuned. I'll post we it on Facebook. A, a lesser used Twitter. That's we are Wild Think. I'm pretty yes. sure. But that Instagram and Facebook, that's go there. <laughs> the lesser used Twitter is very relatable. So well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Thank you for having us. We really yeah, enjoyed chatting with us. you all. Very, this was very fun. Thank you again, Emily and Nick, for joining us here on the Birdie Bunch podcast. Love talking to you all about Wild Think. That was just super fascinating. Really love to hear those stories about the those vending machines. So, so cool. But we're now here to wrap up the Birdie Bunch podcast for this week. So let's plug our social meds. Matt, where can you be found on the social meds? You can find me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Don't go find my Facebook. That's really kind of private information. Anyways, you can find me on Instagram at Matt Valga, M-A-T-T-V, as in Victor, A-L-I-G-A. Who knows? You might be getting a post or two. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? I don't know. So you won't know either. But you also can find me on Twitter at mvaliga. So that's M V is in Victor A L I G A. Basically, take out the at for Matt, and you're good as gold. You can find me on Instagram at the Brittany Bunch T H E B is in Bird R I T T A N Y underscore B is in Brichter U N C H. Um, and I don't. Don't know why I'm gonna post. Could be cute animal photos, could just be life updates. Um, but stick around and find out. <laughs> Love it. And you can also find me on Instagram at cj.greco. That's cj.greco. And I'll probably be posting something from either when Freya was visiting me or from when I was in Boston. So lots of good moods slash times. If you want to find us all, you can visit at the Birdie Bunch Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And we post lots of really awesome content. Um, if you visit our Facebook, you can leave us a review. You can also leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. But if you leave us a review on Facebook or Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star review. We will read it out here on the podcast. So I'm actually going to read out a review right now. So a review I have here is from Kara Kastner. And it says, check out this podcast. Super fun and informative from awesome people with like a little like thumbs up emoji and like a little care emoji. Oh, love getting emojis in there. Pretty fantastic. Um, so yeah, leave us a review on Facebook or Apple Podcasts. We'll read it out on the podcast. For other ways that you can support the podcast, visit our website, www.thebirdiebunchpodcast.com. That's thebirdiebunchpodcast.com. And click on that support us tab. There you can find our merch store with some really amazing merch. Matt has some new merch he's pretty excited about. And there's going to be some more merch coming up soon in uh, the next couple of months. So definitely keep your eyes out. You can also visit our Patreon there or at patreon.com slash the Birdie Bunch podcast. There are some really awesome perks that you can get if you join our Patreon. One is just an awesome shout out here in the podcast. So first, shout out to our patron, Gabe Anderley. Thank you so much, Gabe. We love and appreciate you. Other perks that you could get are seeing the video of this podcast, the unedited version of this podcast, 
and another is getting a full-on extra bonus podcast every month. Some really exciting stuff if you sign up to our Patreon. Definitely, definitely do that. Other than leaving a review, visiting our website, or just following us on the social meds, you can support the Brady Bunch podcast in the most easy and simple way possible, just by sharing us with a friend. If you have a friend who could learn something from the episode that we talked about today, or any of the topics we've ever talked about, we're nearing like 90-something episodes, so it's very exciting. Thank you, everybody, for joining us this week on the Brady Bunch podcast. We've had a great time. Hope you've had a great time. But without further ado, <laughs> we'll catch you next time. <laughs> said time so much. Time, We've had a time. great time. You've had a good time. Catch you next time. Time, 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 time. Uh, time is but a flat egg. That's the end of the podcast. Thanks so much, all you nature lovers, for listening to yet another episode of the Birdie Bunch podcast. We would especially like to thank Sarah Dunlap for designing our art for our episodes, as well as Connor Whitman for producing our music. The mission of the Birdie Bunch podcast is to inspire an inclusive community for conservation by using education to promote fascination.